Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and terrorism. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the afternoon of February 15, 2011, Libyan lawyer Fatih Turbel watched as seven government vehicles arrived outside his Benghazi home. He knew precisely why they were there. Turbel was a human rights activist and a victim of Muammar Gaddafi's brutal regime. In 1996, he lost several family members during the Abu Salim prison massacre, one of Gaddafi's worst human rights violations. After that tragedy, Turbil made it his mission to oppose Gaddafi in any way possible. Recently, this meant Turbil and other activists were organizing a massive demonstration in Benghazi called the Day of Rage. Turbil's goal was to get people out into the street and demand Gaddafi loosen his grip over Libya. Unfortunately, Turbil's agitation put him right in Gaddafi's crosshairs. Gaddafi's security forces barged into Turbil's home. Helpless, he watched as they attacked his mother and stole or destroyed almost everything he owned. Still, a defiant Turbil told his captors that arresting him would never stop the day of rage. And he was right. But Turbil had no idea that the simple protest would evolve into a full-fledged revolution. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we'll finish our study of Muammar Gaddafi, one of the most eccentric, belligerent, and reviled dictators of the 20th century. Last week, we examined how Gaddafi's devotion to the pan-Arab nationalism of Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser led him to overthrow the Libyan monarchy. This week, we'll explore Gaddafi's increasingly authoritarian rule and how he used it to transform Libya into a police state. We'll also examine how his feuds with the West turned Libya into an international pariah and stoked resentment that Gaddafi couldn't contain. We'll head back to Libya right after this. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
In September 1969, oil-rich Libya suffered from systemic corruption and exploitative Western influence. 27-year-old Muammar Gaddafi decided that the only way to fix the country was to seize it himself. So he and his military supporters overthrew the Libyan king, Idris al-Sanusi, in a bloodless coup. But in the years that followed, Gaddafi struggled to inspire revolutionary enthusiasm among the Libyan populace. So in the early 1970s, he invented a new ideology that he believed would change the hearts and minds of his people. He called it the Third Universal Theory. The theory was vaguely inspired by Nasser's policies in Egypt and constituted a mix of socialist economic principles and Islamic social tenets. The economic policies involved nationalizing the oil companies and giving the government control over private sector jobs. Meanwhile, the strict social decrees were based on Sharia, or traditional Quranic laws. Gaddafi believed that the third universal theory would eventually lead to a stateless society. He hoped Libya would ultimately have no parliamentary government and the people would rule themselves through direct democracy. To codify this ideal, he renamed the nation the Socialist People's Libyan Arab Jamaharia in March 1977. Jamaharia meant state of the masses, and it was Gaddafi's way to announce a new era in Libyan history. But stateless societies don't just create themselves. Gaddafi understood that for his apolitical utopia to work, he needed to teach Libyans to actively participate in governing their communities. It was the only way the state government would eventually become unnecessary. Ironically, his decentralized approach resembled the factional tribal systems that ruled North Africa for thousands of years. So in many ways, Gaddafi wasn't introducing a progressive new system, Rather, it seemed a step backward. Still, Gaddafi desperately wanted to emulate Gamal Abdel Nasser. He wanted to be known as someone who instituted a new ideology across the Arab world. However, he made everything up as he went along. So whatever success he might have achieved was undermined by countless illogical or impractical ideas. For example, Gaddafi instituted a confusing bottom-up approach to bring about Jamahiriya. In his plan, every Libyan adult would debate and vote on popular issues, including national matters, in a system of local congresses. Then, chosen delegates from those congresses would join the General People's Congress in Tripoli, led by Gaddafi. This 970-person legislative body was intended to represent all of Libya's local congresses. However, the mere existence of the People's Congress seemed antithetical to Gaddafi's vision of a stateless society. It was a large, centralized bureaucratic system, the hallmark of a state-run country. This dissonance was one of many reasons his policy was illogical and doomed to fail. Gaddafi also ran into another problem, the Libyan people. Many citizens didn't want to participate in government, especially at the local level. According to author Alison Pargeter, 
In Tripoli and Garion, more than half the members of local congresses were routinely absent from meetings. And in some areas of Misrata, absenteeism reached 90%. Meanwhile, Gaddafi faced stiff resistance among university intellectuals. Even before officially establishing Jamaharia, students saw Gaddafi's political theory as illogical and authoritarian. They were particularly angry about the dogmatic, Sharia-inspired social decrees. Gaddafi had expected students to spread his ideas to the masses. Instead, they protested them. Gaddafi was furious and couldn't understand why they reacted this way. After all, his goal was direct democracy for the Libyan people. Yet he failed to recognize that he was trying to achieve this democracy through a rigid and arbitrary system. Even though he encouraged people to get involved on the local level, he also strictly prohibited any sort of dissent. Gaddafi's forces arrested the dissident students and threw them in prison. But when the protests continued, Gaddafi's crackdown turned more vicious. In April 1977, Gaddafi publicly hanged a group of dissidents and televised the execution across the nation. Gaddafi refused to let apathy and dissent ruin his revolution. In fact, he once described the revolution as, quote, a moving train. Whoever stands in its way will be crushed. But despite this unstoppable passion, Gaddafi didn't see himself as a head of state. He considered himself a fighter and an intellectual, and he believed that running a government interfered with his ability to incite revolutionary zeal among the people. So in March 1979, he changed his title to Brother Leader. Then he resigned from the General People's Congress and announced that he would lead the new Revolutionary Committees movement. However, the Revolutionary Committees movement was just a fancy name for a paramilitary group. Its job was to purge any kind of political dissent that could threaten Jamahiriya. If the people weren't going to embrace it, he would force it upon them. Those who refused were subject to harsh punishment. During this period, Gaddafi's brutal authoritarianism placed Libya in a state of fear and isolation. The revolutionary committees took control of the country's media and broadcast nothing but propaganda. The committees also took over Libya's judicial system. Revolutionary courts usurped civilian institutions, and the new judges interpreted the law as they saw fit. Now, even before a conviction, suspected criminals faced increasingly harsh treatment. During interrogations, the accused were tortured, which often resulted in false confessions. Many of these abusive interrogations were televised to instill fear among the people. As Gaddafi's new militant wing terrified the people into accepting his revolution, it also seized the economy. For someone whose goal was a stateless society, Gaddafi's regime made the people even more reliant on the state a state that was now flush with cash. By the dawn of the 1980s, Libya's economic fortunes had shifted. With 99.9% .9 of its revenue coming from oil, Libya brought in billions of dollars annually. 
Gaddafi's regime used these revenues to provide the people with housing, transportation, health care, and education. While there was still widespread fear, most Libyans were no longer living in poverty as they had under the monarchy. But the state was still in charge of the finances, not the Libyan people. And Gaddafi's administration had a lot to learn about running an economy. Throughout the early 1980s, Gaddafi eliminated much of the private sector, especially professionals like doctors or lawyers who operated their own practices. Meanwhile, merchants had their shops co-opted by the state. And when the regime banned all private commerce and trade in 1984, those shops were devoid of merchandise. As a result, black markets popped up throughout the country. By all accounts, Jamahiria was an abysmal failure. The only reason it gained traction was that Gaddafi's authoritarian regime forced it on the people. But as the self-proclaimed brother leader of the Arab world, Gaddafi looked to export his failing ideology abroad. He tried to insert his teaching throughout the Middle East and Africa, but his ideological goals quickly fell by the wayside. He mainly provided financial support to other autocratic strongmen, like Idi Amin and Jean Bedel Bokassa, and funded various Arab or Muslim militant groups. He felt the need to insert himself into one fight in particular, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. As a staunch anti-Zionist, Gaddafi financed many Palestinian organizations, including Yasser Arafat's PLO and George Habash's PFLP. He refused to forgive or forget the Arab humiliation in the Six-Day War of 1967, when Israel annexed portions of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. However, as Gaddafi attempted to rise as a pan-nationalist leader, many Arab heads of state considered him a complete joke. They were more than willing to accept his oil money, but most laughed at Gaddafi's self-made image as a revolutionary Arab messiah. While Arab leaders mocked Gaddafi, Western leaders took a much firmer stance. Many European nations were outraged by his support of militant organizations and terrorism. But the United States was the most perturbed by Gaddafi. And with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, Gaddafi had a powerful new enemy who sought to destroy Jamahiriya. Coming up, Gaddafi takes on Ronald Reagan. What could be more shocking than uncovering the dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Molly from the Parkhead series Conspiracy Theories. Each week, we take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction, revealing that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. The rise and fall of J. Edgar Hoover, 75 Years of Roswell, The Tragic Death of Princess Diana. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may be just outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. 
When Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser died in 1970, 28-year-old Muammar Gaddafi appointed himself the heir to pan-Arab nationalism. He became a staunch crusader against Western imperialism in Libya and the Arab world. Throughout the 1970s and early 1980s, Gaddafi funded various militant groups around Africa and the Middle East to combat Western influence. It didn't take long for this aggressive activity to catch the attention of the United States. At the beginning of Gaddafi's reign, the U.S. and Libya grudgingly got along. Gaddafi needed American energy technology to extract his nation's oil. And while the U.S. wasn't fond of Gaddafi's rhetoric, they were happy to take that oil. However, between Gaddafi's hostility toward Israel and nationalizing the oil industry, he eventually soured their relationship. In the late 1970s, the U.S. began limiting its foreign aid and refused to sell weapons to Libya. Then, in 1980, the U.S. shut down its embassy in Tripoli. But the failing relationship did nothing to curb Gaddafi's rhetoric or antagonism. Rather, he continued to poke the American bear, testing just how far he could push the U.S. government and its newly elected president, Ronald Reagan. Reagan was hawkish, and not just toward Gaddafi. His appeal to voters was his projection of military strength and honor. Compared to Presidents Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, Reagan didn't mind being blunt and forceful against Gaddafi, who he called the Mad Dog of the Middle East. During his first year in office, Reagan closed the Libyan embassy in Washington, D.C. and limited Libyan diplomats' movements to a 25-mile radius of the United Nations in New York. Meanwhile, a territory dispute in the Mediterranean Sea resulted in the U.S. shooting down two Libyan Air Force jets. But Gaddafi refused to back down. He saw much of the United States' aggressive action as bluster, and even considered Reagan a, quote, second-rate actor. As Reagan implemented embargoes and sanctions, Gaddafi laughed them off. Flush with oil supplies, Gaddafi could easily offset any loss of American profits by selling to Europe. Plus, Gaddafi loved getting under Reagan's skin. He delighted in annoying the most powerful leader in the free world, who he hypocritically viewed as a charlatan masquerading as a tough guy. Then, in the mid-1980s, tensions between the two nations took a fatal turn. On April 5, 1986, a bomb exploded at the LaBelle nightclub, a popular spot for U.S. troops in West Berlin. The blast injured over 200 people, and three were killed. Two of the dead were U.S. soldiers. American intelligence blamed Gaddafi for the terrorist attack. Fed up with Gaddafi's antics, Reagan sought revenge. Ten days later, on the morning of April 15th, U.S. fighter jets bombed targets in Tripoli and Benghazi, including Gaddafi's compound, Bob Alazazia. Gaddafi barely escaped alive. The 1986 airstrikes shook him deeply. Never in a million years did he think Reagan would actually attack Libyan soil. Gaddafi hoped that the U.S. airstrikes would inspire a pan-Arab mobilization. To him, 
the attacks proved he had been right about Western imperialism. But instead, he received no support from other Arab leaders. Instead of taking the hint, Gaddafi doubled down. He couldn't let Reagan embarrass him on the world stage. But his next move turned Libya into a global pariah. On December 21, 1988, Pan Am Flight 103 left Heathrow Airport in London and headed for New York. About 40 minutes later, the airplane exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland. All 259 passengers and crew were killed, including 190 Americans. Over the next two years, various local and international agencies investigated the disaster. They quickly concluded it was a terrorist attack. Initially, the FBI believed Palestinian terrorists carried out the Lockerbie bombing, acting on behalf of Iran. But mounting evidence shifted the blame squarely toward Libya. Among the Lockerbie wreckage, law enforcement discovered pieces of a detonator and a suitcase that held the bomb. Both were similar to those used in another terrorist attack in 1989, which was allegedly carried out by Libyans. The FBI's investigation led them to two Libyan citizens, Abdel Basset al-Megrahi and Al-Amin Khalifa Fahima. Both had worked security for Libyan Arab Airlines in Malta, and a shopkeeper there confirmed they had purchased clothes found in the same suitcase that contained the bomb. In November 1991, the U.S. and U.K. formally charged al-Megrahi and Fahima with terrorism and demanded that Gaddafi hand them over. But Gaddafi refused. He vehemently denied Libya's role in the attack. Instead, he claimed that the U.S. was using the Lockerbie bombing to destabilize his regime. Still, Gaddafi feared Western repercussions, even as he maintained Libya's innocence. He offered concessions to appease the Western countries, including putting the men on trial in Libya or another Arab nation. Neither the U.S. nor U.K. agreed to the proposal. Both countries also convinced the United Nations to take stricter measures against Libya. In 1992, the UN Security Council set resolutions that banned arms deals, froze various Libyan assets, and prohibited energy technology exports to the country. But the UN did not ban the sale of Libya's oil, which would have been equivalent to detonating an economic nuclear bomb. While some European nations relied heavily on Libyan oil, the UN refused to push this so-called nuclear option. Gaddafi may have avoided the worst, but the economic sanctions still hit hard. With few foreign goods entering the country, inflation skyrocketed. Government funds for welfare programs also evaporated, leaving state-funded institutions to scrounge for financing and supplies. Meanwhile, roads, bridges, and other infrastructure quickly fell into disrepair. Throughout the 1990s, Libya seemed caught in an economic death spiral. And as the country deteriorated, blame fell squarely on the shoulders of Gaddafi. For the first time in decades, public anger united many groups across Libya. 
the two most dangerous groups plotting Gaddafi's downfall were hardline Islamists and military officers from within one of Gaddafi's most loyal tribes. Unfortunately for these dissidents, Gaddafi knew about the plots against him and chose to address them with utter brutality. In 1993, 51-year-old Gaddafi's security forces arrested the disgruntled officers and destroyed homes belonging to their family members. Later, Gaddafi forced the families and tribal members to denounce the officers as traitors. A few years later, the accused were executed, squashing whatever military and tribal discontent remained. While the military officers were a thorn in Gaddafi's side, the Libyan Islamists posed a much more severe and immediate threat. While they agreed with Gaddafi's interpretation of Sharia law, they were offended by his socialist economic policies. They considered them blasphemous, as in their minds, any connection between their Islamic faith and money was heretical. Many of these young men were ideologically inspired by the Mujahideen victory over the Soviets in Afghanistan. They desperately sought their own glory on the battlefield. Of course, if an entire generation of young Libyan Islamists set Gaddafi in their sights, it would be dangerous for his regime. Because of the Islamists' existential power, Gaddafi knew he needed to take drastic measures. He wanted to do something that would crush their spirits and demonstrate who was really in charge of Libya. So Gaddafi unshackled his security forces in every corner of Libyan society, not just the military barracks. Just as he did with the renegade military officers, Gaddafi used the threat of harming families against the Islamist conspirators. He forced their relatives into his security units and used them to hunt down their own brothers, sons, and nephews. With this tactic, Gaddafi's men discovered many Islamist sleeper cells. Their members were quickly rounded up and thrown into Abu Salim prison, the country's most notorious jail. But even that didn't silence them. In June 1996, the inmates at Abu Salim revolted against their guards in protest over the abysmal conditions. They demanded better medical care and an end to prison torture. In response, Gaddafi's men led over 1,200 inmates into the prison yard and executed them. Gaddafi didn't publicize the Abu Salim massacre. Instead, he allowed rumors to spread, hoping they would break the Islamists' will. Once again, Gaddafi's ruthless methods achieved his terrible goals. In a short time, the remainder of the militant Islamists fled the country for good. However, many of their family members were left behind, along with those of the Abu Salim victims. After announcing that their loved ones had died in prison, Gaddafi offered them blood money to assuage their grief. But unlike many previous victims of Gaddafi's regime, the families of those killed in the Abu Salim massacre would neither forgive nor forget. Coming up, Gaddafi finally meets his match. Now, back to the story. 
By the end of the 1990s, Muammar Gaddafi successfully broke all significant opposition to his regime. Any dissident officers or Arab Islamists plotting Gaddafi's downfall were imprisoned or executed. Unfortunately, Libya continued to disintegrate. Under the international economic sanctions, everyday life was unmanageable. As Gaddafi surveyed the dire domestic situation, he realized he had only one option to save Libya and his dream of Jamahiriya. He had to settle the dispute over the 1988 Lockerbie bombing. Gaddafi still hadn't turned over the bombing suspects to international authorities. Thus, the UN had called on its members to continue sanctions against Libya. But many countries, especially Arab ones, didn't agree with all the punishments. By the late 1990s, several Arab and African countries broke or questioned the sanctions. Some even demanded the Lockerbie trial occur in a neutral country. With the threat of sanctions falling apart, the U.S. and U.K. agreed to try the Lockerbie suspects at The Hague in the Netherlands if Gaddafi handed them over. Normally, Gaddafi would have rejected the offer. But the economic situation in Libya was so dire that in April 1999, Gaddafi officially handed over Abdelbasset al-Megrahi and al-Amin Khalifa Fahima to the UN. After a nearly year-long trial, Fahima was acquitted while al-Megrahi was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Gaddafi and the Libyan people were outraged by the verdict. Many in Libya believed the trial was a political sham. They thought the U.S. and British governments had pressured the judges. Protests erupted in Tripoli. For the first time since King Idris's downfall, there was a swell of national solidarity and even some renewed support for Gaddafi. Despite the guilty verdict, Gaddafi's gamble to appease the Western powers paid off, for the most part. After the trial, the UN suspended sanctions and Libya could conduct business with member states again. But the US government still wanted Gaddafi to accept responsibility for the Lockerbie bombing, renounce all terrorism, and compensate the victims' families. For several years, Gaddafi refused to accept these additional demands. In his mind, al-Megrahi's conviction was unjust enough. Paying for a crime he denied supporting was salt in the wound. But Gaddafi eventually relented, and in August 2003, he grudgingly accepted responsibility for the Lockerbie bombing. He agreed to pay the victims' families $10 million each. But just as it seemed like Gaddafi could finally breathe a sigh of relief, the U.S. government made an entirely new set of demands. In the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the United States sought to control which governments could possess weapons of mass destruction, or WMDs. For years, the U.S. feared that Gaddafi was actively developing or intended to develop WMDs. And while Libya did have a nuclear energy program, it never manufactured any weapons. Still, the U.S. wanted to ensure that Gaddafi would never have nuclear arms. Once President George W. Bush came into office, he pushed Gaddafi into allowing periodic inspections of his nuclear program. 
This time, Gaddafi didn't antagonize the Americans. Instead, he focused on rehabilitating his nation's reputation. With sanctions lifted and Libya no longer considered a nuclear threat, 62-year-old Gaddafi set out to redefine his image among the rest of the world. Slowly but surely, Gaddafi opened Libya to foreign investment and trade. Even some American companies resumed business there. Gaddafi allowed American oil companies to set up shop within the energy sector. However, to avoid full exploitation, he instituted strict stipulations. Depending on the output, the Libyan government could withhold up to 90% of a private company's oil production. As Gaddafi slowly initiated economic reforms, it seemed like he might also be willing to reform Libya's political system. During the early 2000s, Gaddafi's son, Saif al-Islam, implemented policies that suggested Libya's police state was finally coming to an end. Al-Islam also made overtures toward ending Libya's well-documented human rights violations. He condemned torture and promised dissident exiles, including Islamists, that they could return home without fear. But the most promising reform came in 2004, when Al-Islam formed a committee to discuss drafting a new constitution. It appeared this effort would chip away at his father's ideology while seizing power from the revolutionary committees. Unfortunately, the new constitution never materialized. And over the next few years, talk of political reform ceased altogether. It seemed Gaddafi and his children weren't interested in public reform after all. As the country slowly opened up to outside influence, the masses watched firsthand as Libya's elite grew more corrupt. They hoarded Libya's newfound wealth, which was allegedly worth tens of billions of dollars. The most prominent offenders were Gaddafi's children, the so-called reformers. Each of the country's most lucrative industries were controlled by Gaddafi's kids, including telecommunications, shipping, and even athletics. While most Libyans lived just above the poverty line, Gaddafi's children styled themselves in Western clothes, drove luxurious supercars, and hung out with American celebrities. And as the first decade of the 21st century came to a close, the Libyan people's anger over the oppression and corruption of Gaddafi's regime grew even more pronounced. Combined with the memories of the Abu Salim massacre, which never faded from the public consciousness, Libya was once again a powder keg ready to blow. Ironically, the fuse was lit on December 17, 2010, during an event that had nothing to do with Libya. In neighboring Tunisia, a street vendor lit himself on fire after the police arbitrarily seized his goods. Inspired by the desperate act, people throughout the capital protested against their country's own repressive regime. Within a month, Tunisia's authoritarian president resigned. Social media allowed Tunisia's revolution to flourish and expand beyond its borders. For the first time, mass mobilization occurred through platforms like Facebook. Protests erupted across North Africa and the Middle East. 
Eventually, these movements came to be known collectively as the Arab Spring. No one thought Tunisia would be the first in a series of dominoes to drop. Yet, by the end of January 2011, inspired Egyptians mobilized to protest the ruthless dictatorship of Hosni Mubarak. Just like in Tunisia, it only took a few weeks of demonstrations to topple a 30-year regime. Over in Libya, Gaddafi understood that his reign could be the next to fall, and he took two approaches to avoid revolution. First, he tried to woo Libyans with the promise of additional reforms. Second, he sought to make amends with Libya's tribal elders, who could appease any political concerns among their people. But for Gaddafi, these desperate measures were too little too late. Libyans were fed up, and a new revolution was inevitable. On February 15, 2011, Gaddafi's men arrested Fatih Turbul, a Benghazi lawyer and activist representing the families of those killed in the Abu Salim massacre. For weeks, Turbul had been planning a protest called the Day of Rage. The event aimed to inspire reforms and a new constitution. Gaddafi hoped to stop the demonstration before it could occur by arresting Turbil. Instead, Turbil's incarceration sent Libya into chaos. The people of Benghazi rose up, and within days, demonstrations reached nearby cities. As the outrage spread, so did the violence. Libyan citizens took to the streets with weapons and torches. They burned down revolutionary committee buildings and police stations. Gaddafi responded with a vengeance. By the end of the second day of protests, his soldiers had killed 46 demonstrators. But Gaddafi's show of force did nothing to stop the outrage. In fact, it only inspired more citizens to join the cause. Within days, protests broke out in Tripoli. The will of the people was clear. Change was coming, whether Gaddafi wanted it or not. By the end of February, Libya descended into civil war. In Cyrenaica, the region where Benghazi is situated, rebels formed the National Transitional Council, or NTC. The NTC declared itself the real representative body of the people. Almost immediately, it received support from Western governments. As revolutionary violence swept through Libya, the United States and Europe saw a chance to eliminate Gaddafi's regime once and for all. Soon, the UN implemented a no-fly zone over the country, meaning if Gaddafi used his fighter jets, they would be shot down by NATO forces. For Gaddafi, this was a significant handicap in combating the spreading revolution. By the end of March, NATO troops launched their own airstrikes directly against Gaddafi. Under the cover of these strikes, rebels swept through the country. As Gaddafi's fiefdom shrank, he became increasingly desperate. He tried to make peace with the West and offered to turn Libya into a democratic state. But Western powers weren't buying it. They'd heard Gaddafi's promises and knew he would likely change his mind. Plus, many high-ranking leaders in the NTC already had ties to the U.S. and Europe. On August 20th, the Libyan rebels took control of Tripoli. 
More importantly, they seized Gaddafi's compound in Bab al-Azaziyah. Though Gaddafi had already fled, they looted and burned his opulent palace. Now, all that remained of the regime was finding the brother leader himself. Gaddafi covertly made his way to Sirt, near his home village. He frantically sought help from allies outside Libya, refusing to surrender while rebel forces descended on the city over the summer. By autumn, Sirt was no longer safe for Gaddafi. On October 20th, he took a convoy and snuck out of the city, making their way to his home village. But Gaddafi's convoy was massive, and it didn't take long for a NATO predator drone to spot it. Not long afterward, a NATO fighter jet flew over Gaddafi's vehicles and opened fire. Multiple SUVs in Gaddafi's convoy were damaged or destroyed. As armed rebels descended upon the crash site, Gaddafi and a few bodyguards fled on foot, eventually finding shelter in a sewer pipe. But his attempts to hide were futile. Within minutes, the militants found Gaddafi and dragged him out into the road. A terrified Gaddafi pleaded with his captors, saying, You are my sons. Show me mercy. Shame on all of you. One man responded, You don't know the meaning of shame. The militants proceeded to beat Gaddafi, capturing the carnage on their cell phones. The final image of Gaddafi showed him bloody and beaten with a bullet wound to his head. His death was confirmed a few hours later at a nearby hospital. The irony of Gaddafi's demise was that he'd always sought to get Libyans to participate in his revolution. Instead, he became a victim of theirs. After more than 40 years, the Gaddafi regime ended in an uprising of violence and bloodshed. The misguided dream of Jamahiriya was no more. Just as it had been after World War II, Libya's fate was primarily dictated by foreign intervention. In this case, the NATO troops who helped Libyans bring Gaddafi down. Gaddafi's death marked the end of the first Libyan civil war. However, in the following months, the NTC struggled to maintain its authority or act as a legitimate government body. Because they could not provide food, water, electricity, or government payroll, the people grew angry with them, too. The NTC's successor, the General National Congress, also failed to achieve stability. As a result, Various militant groups seized control of local regions challenging the GNC's rule. Sadly, this led to years of factional violence which escalated into another civil war in 2014. In 2020, the various factions finally came together and agreed to a ceasefire, ending six years of harrowing bloodshed. Even more promising, in March 2021, they established the Government of National Unity, or GNU. As of this recording, the UN-backed GNU remains in power as the provisional government. Its job is to organize and facilitate Libya's first presidential election. The election was supposed to be held in December 2021, but still has not occurred. One of the candidates vying to become Libya's first elected president is Saif al-Islam, Muammar Gaddafi's son. 
If al-Islam is elected president, will he stay true to his alleged reformist ideas? Perhaps Gaddafi's son can undo some of his tyrannical father's legacy. Only time will tell. Thanks for listening to Dictators. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, edited by Tony Goodman and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Amelia Millars, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>